0: What is up, everybody? A really fun and different show for you today. Our guest is Robert Keith, co-founder of the Beartooth Group, a firm offering meaningful, high-value ways for conservation-minded ranch investors, buyers, brokers, and owners to invest in, restore, and sell ranch lands in the American West. Today's episode, we're talking about something every investor looks for, an inefficient market with not a lot of information or competitors. Robert buys distressed properties in the ranch real estate market in the greater Yellowstone area, restores them, and provides investors with both a financial and environmental return. Robert shares the ins and outs of the process, the attraction to investors focused on sustainable investing, and what it's like to have the tailwinds like COVID and even the hit TV show Yellowstone. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Long-time listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself. But with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high-quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities, typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invest material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10 East.co. That's the number 10 East.co. Please enjoy this episode with Beartooth Group's Robert Keith. Robert, welcome to the show. nice to be chatting with you good to see you man uh tell our listeners where you are today i'm in bozeman montana you know we um when the zombie apocalypse happened we uh we cut bait got out of the city uh did a little uh drive about and spent some time in bozeman this would have been spring or summer probably summer of 2020 so deep deep in it and uh I remember spending some time in Bozeman and, and I'm, I'm kind of from the West, so I'm familiar, but I uh, was just thinking, I was, man, what a beautiful place. This is so nice. Maybe we should look into, I don't know, like a moving here, a vacation house here. And we had started chatting with some locals and they said already it was getting smashed. And this was two years ago with, uh, with Influx. So what's the vibe? Uh, how, how's, how's things in Montana right now?
1: Oh, it it got smashed, continued to get smashed. Uh, I mean, Bozeman's kind of unique with the university and a lot of perks from home, quote unquote. So, it's a pretty easy move um, from wherever folks are coming from. And and so, yeah, residential real estate's continued to
0: go up, up, up. All those damn Californians. Uh, I remember like one of our most stressful moments was we wanted to take my son to the planetarium there and the museum and we were really struggling if we wanted to be inside and, and like risk it for the, for the pandemic to be in a, in the planet Anyway, we did. Uh, but, but then they ended up doing like, uh, the program was like string theory or something. I think he was like three at the time. So it was not, how did he enjoy that? It was not the, well, I mean, it's a bunch of pretty pictures. That's all that mattered. And there's a guy next to me that coughed the whole time. So I thought (laughs) that was it for us. Anyway, uh, Montana's special, special place. Um, so this is gonna be a little bit different today. This is a fun one. We've definitely never, we've done a lot of natural resources, farming and investing, um, never anything quite in your wheelhouse. So tell us real briefly what it is you guys do, and then we'll kind of walk it back and go through an origin story and and really get uh, deep in all things uh, your world. Yeah, you bet. I mean, the brief summary version is we're in the ranch
1: real estate market and we buy distressed properties, partner with owners who are in a matter of distress, bring the tools of lower middle market, private equity type funds and add value, add growth to these properties and exit. So it's, it's ultimately a, a buy, fix up, resell or, or exit kind of scenario. And, and the really cool thing that I love about it is that doing that growth work, that uh, adding value work is really all about environmental attributes. So it's restoring creeks and restoring wetlands and cleaning up degraded structures and, and doing all sorts of work like that that's making the land more valuable from not just a real estate standpoint, but also from, a, from an environmental standpoint. And, and so really that's, I think, the primary reason investors invest with us is you get both. You get the financial returns and you get the environmental returns, and that's not easily done. And usually there's some sort of trade-off there. In our case, it actually drives, uh, the financial returns are driving the environmental returns.
0: It sounds like it would be a great Netflix show you know like we get like a, like the we got the all the I mean there's like a thousand of these residential house flipper style and uh, not saying you guys are a ranch flipper but the um, but the style where people love that kind of concept and to me man talk about a, a good plot line you guys uh, I, I'm in LA you want to talk to some producers let me know we'll uh, we'll, we'll connect you. Right now, Yellowstone's stealing the uh, the limelight, and that, that's not in exactly reality
1: uh, in right. my world. But uh, nonetheless, it does drive a lot of people out here.
0: Well, see, that's a perfect segue. All you can, all the people that are uh, you know, interested. There's clearly a, a market for it. Let's start with the beginning. So, uh, you originally were PE equity research in the beginning, right? Like your your background pre starting uh Beartooth? Wall Street was you know,
1: original. I worked for Morgan Stanley um, in the kind of dot-com boom and, and bust, and then uh, did business school in the West Coast. And uh, after that, then did the PE thing, yeah, in Silicon Valley. Really, I think the, the origin story probably starts, A, with, with a highly supportive wife, and uh, B, with a class in business school that was called Environmental Entrepreneurship. And there were a series... Yeah, yeah. It, crazy to believe that at Stanford Business School, they... 20 some years ago, taught environmental entrepreneurship, but they did really a a formative class for me because it presented a whole series of case studies. And the case studies were all about companies that were doing a good thing for the world, and as a result, doing better financially. So I had always thought there was this trade-off. You're going to do something well socially, environmentally, you're going to make less money. If you're willing to make less money, you can do something good for the world or or no money. But it, it kind of blew that idea up for me and, and said, these companies uh, are using the environment in this case as a competitive advantage. This is like Trex, the decking maker who takes you know recycled plastic and turns it into decking and park benches, et cetera, and a whole series of other studies like that. And, and it like, like I said, kind of blew my world. And I said, well, if you can do something that does both, i.e. makes more money than you would otherwise, and does a positive thing for the world, why wouldn't you do it?
0: Where was the kernel of inspiration for this idea? Where, where did that start to germinate?
1: Probably my uh, former partner, Carl Palmer, he at business school had come from the conservation world and had really seen the, the fact that there's just not enough dollars going into land restoration and land protection, particularly in the Western U.S. Greater Yellowstone area in particular is what we were focused on. So where can one find additional dollars for that restoration and protection of these degraded lands, these important lands? Well, the really obvious answer is the investment markets. And So if, if you could take a very small drop out of all the dollars that go into the public equity markets or go into the traditional pro, uh, uh, private equity markets and put that towards conservation and restoration work, you'd have just an amazing flood of capital going in towards rehabbing lands. And, and so I think that was, that was really his thought process. So the two of us, uh, he, he started doing that on his own post-business school. And after my little stint in private equity, Traditional private equity, we joined together uh, to form Beartooth. Um, and, and at that point in time, really, the, the thesis, as I described, was to find degraded ranch properties that are ecologically important, but needed some TLC and uh, apply that TLC and then uh, resell them in fixed up
0: form. So, prospective investor thinking about this, you know, they got a portfolio, stocks, bonds, and they're looking for something not correlated. What's the end? return stream for, for these type of investors? How should they, how should they think about it?
1: Yeah, uh, that is a great question and one i love to talk about because it's many-faceted, meaning there's a traditional financial return, and, and that's our core fund product. We're trying to put up a good solid market level financial return. But we got a whole bunch of people in that vehicle who love other types of return, right? Like they care about that elk migration corridor. They care about the fact that grizzly habitats getting protected. They care about that a ranch next to Yellowstone is never going to have massive development on it. They care about cold water and, and the restoration thereof, et cetera. So there's all these environmental types of returns. And, and what we've seen, Meb, and, and this has kind of been a almost a, a COVID event, although I think these people are thinking about it beforehand, is some of them are pushing us to do other types of deal where they'll, they'll, they'll approach me and say, "Look, I don't need a financial return. Just get me my money back. But what I want to see done with that money is, you know, again, protect that elk migration corridor. Let's make sure that the path of the pronghorn antelope never gets developed. Those are the types of returns that they want to see. And so we've done a number of deals now in which folks have said, uh, you know, I've I've got a ten million dollar portfolio and I want to get zero financial return on it. I want all these intangible, all these environmental types of returns, and put my money to work that way. So the beautiful thing with that is we can do deals that don't work for the funds, you know, there of course, because financially we don't have the same high bar, and we can use some of those dollars to help leverage uh, the fund's returns. And so I think it's the way we, as um, those who have been incredibly blessed and lucky in this country, need to think about investing. Like uh, Jed Emerson is a a fellow who I still know. uh, He talks about a blended value proposition in which... Some portion, you take the per- traditional portfolio diversification, you need some stocks, some bonds, some international, some you know, non-correlated stuff like real estate or minimally correlated stuff. Well, let's think about that from a social standpoint. And folks who have the means should be thinking about not just how can I maximize my financial returns, but also how can I maximize those other returns? If our government is giving me excellent tax benefits here, and I'm not covering the cost of such and such thing, or there, we don't, I don't feel there's enough dollars going towards conservation. Well, what if I simply get a, a low financial return, a one, a two, a three, a 4% kind of financial return? And at the same time, I know that my family and I are protecting grizzly habitat. I'm keeping the grizzly from going extinct. And this is a real world example. thats, that's I mean, this is an investor of ours. Like, that's what they care about. And, and I think that's an amazing thing. And frankly, more people should be
0: thinking that way. So w- when you guys get started, give me a little on, on the timeline. What year might have this been?
1: 2004, I think, is when we started working together. Um, it was a proverbial Silicon Valley. Uh, literally, I had two dogs and effectively was more or less living in an in-law unit garage. And so <laughs> we'd go over there every day and
0: sweat it out in, uh, in the garage for about a year. So this is sort of pre, uh, pre-financial crisis walk me through kind of like the beginnings of all right this is our thesis how does one start to go about finding i mean there's like to my knowledge you can't i mean i get some of these catalogs in the mail now but these are also probably the the ones that are not a value arbitrage but this is like hey here's this premier uh it's kind of like ranch porn. Here's like a $20 million property, Meb, you can never afford, but it's beautiful. So you can just flip through this picture book. Um, but there's no Zillow to my knowledge of ranches. Maybe there is now and today, but particularly back then, like how does one even begin to research in that world?
1: Well, it really became my uh, night and weekend job. So the, the background prior to what I told you is my uh, I grew up in Minnesota, but my family bought a place in Cody, Wyoming uh, when I was a middle school or something like that. So that became really my, my home as I grew up. And I saw this work on our own property, right? If you take a, a creek that's been degraded, a, a wetland that's been degraded, uh, the creek, let's say, has been put in a ditch, the, the wetland's been drained. If you spend a little money and restore that creek, restore that wetland, it truly really is an arbitrage. You're making that land far more valuable than the dollars you put in. So I saw that, again, segue to Morgan Stanley, Wall Street, private equity world, You know, didn't see how that would ever impact my life until then. As I was doing the traditional private equity thing, I had met with the guy who would become my partner, Carl, who I mentioned earlier, and, and learned and understood more what he was doing. And yet I still had my traditional private equity job. And uh, I started trying to create a ranch index my nights and weekend job became like, well, is this an investable asset class effectively? Nobody else is investing in this asset class. You've got timber, Tmos, et cetera. That seems to be working. There's even some conservation-oriented ones, lime timber, conservation forestry, et cetera. They're doing great work. This is back in 2003, 2004, et cetera. But there wasn't, you, you couldn't turn to a, a fund and, and say, well, here's what your returns could be. Frankly, you couldn't even turn to any kind of index because particularly the areas we focus on, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, they're all non-disclosure states. What that means is that the the public recording, the public records, the tax records are not done based on market values. And so if, if we go and sell a ranch or buy a ranch, there, there's no requirement that we disclose the purchase price, uh, sale price, anything like that. And, and so what you end up with, it, with is information being put in a whole bunch of silos. An appraiser worked on a particular deal, they know what the value is there. Banker worked on a particular deal; they know what happened there. Broker, et cetera, and so everybody kind of has their own little silo of information. But there's not kind of an aggregator of all that. There is no Zillow. There is no there. there are, MLS exists in Montana, but there's no people don't put ranches on it. And so I started trying to construct that, and eventually came to the conclusion that uh, there really was something there. And, and frankly, if you compared it to tr- traditional asset classes, there was a lot there. The highest correlation to any other asset class was to timber and farmland, as you might expect. That's only a 0.4 correlation. Way different. And frankly, when you looked at like international equities and small caps and stuff like that, it was inversely correlated. So the, the riskier, more or less, the riskier the traditional asset class, the more the less correlation with ranch land. And so that frankly kind of gave me the, the push I needed to say this was an investable asset class, left the private equity job joined the guy who became my partner, Carl. And uh, we started this thing up and probably by that time was 05. Kind of toyed with, are we doing one deal at a time? Are we going to create a fund? Ended up going down uh, the, the route of a fund. Uh, and you know, you mentioned financial crash earlier. Well, uh, thankfully we got out in front of that, raised money in front of that. You know, Unthankfully, we started investing it ahead of that too. So <laughs> we had some tough sledding there early on,
0: but live to tell about it. Anyone that kind of survives the main... main um... Recessions, bear markets, crisis, uh, bubbles—certainly uh, um, has has the scars, but also the fortitude and the resilience to you know um, to make it through. Uh, we we sympathize with that uh, that experience because we got started about the same time. All right, so inefficient market not a lot of information this is like a classic you know investing potential for value add opportunity right like we talk about this all the time like you know what what value most investors gonna have being the thousandth analyst focused on apple right probably not a lot like but what chance are you gonna have you know on on doing something like this where Information not only is is hard to come by, but you know, in, in some cases, like it's not even disclosed, as you mentioned, in some states. It'd be fun to hear a little bit about how kind of you guys actually pulled the trigger and/or started um, acquiring properties. Just touching back on the
1: inefficient market comment, because that's that's literally why I'm here. I literally was that uh, when I was working for Morgan Stanley. I was that. Probably hundred thousandth analyst looking at blank, and in my case, it issues uh, telecoms and and then uh, uh, internet marketing companies, and and I took that public equity experience and just said, I'm I'm not smart enough to do this consistently well. Um, I'm not going to be able to do that. So, hence the shift to business school, and then private equity, and 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 frankly, uh, the private equity was a much more efficient market than I than I had expected. So. Again, that hence the search for the inefficient market and, and ranch land popped on obviously the list. You know, the other interesting piece about it, Meb, is that we're one of the very, very few institutional actors in this market. Most folks we work with, sellers, buyers, etc., they do one transaction in their lifetimes. And they're they're not doing, you know, several a year. And, and so not only is information siloed, but they're just not particularly sophisticated. It's a retail market. We're an institutional investor and, and so that that certainly helps as we're thinking about valuation on that note the valuation note this is really not only because it well because it's a, a retail asset class it's highly emotional it's it's like you, you go and see that that house and your wife falls in love with it it's pretty hard to get yourself out of that situation right you're gonna buy that house this is very very similar you get that Ranch porn catalog you mentioned earlier. You go and visit it, whether it be you, your wife, your family, your kids, you know, you have an excellent day out there. You catch a bunch of fish, you see the bald eagle flying overhead, you know, you've got the elk herd in the distance. It's like, wow, what is that worth? Well, I don't have a pile of information to know what that's worth. The seller's, you know, done one transaction before, they're telling me that this is what it's worth. Broker says, that's a pretty good number. Um, Sounds about fair to me. You know, frankly, we're we're also talking about ultra high net worth individuals buying these places. You know, sometimes high net worth as well, and and so half a million dollars, a million dollars, sometimes becomes a rounding error, and it's what they want. Um, and and so that also helps to make this an inefficient market. So, getting back to your your question now, uh, you know, how did we first pull that trigger? Really, the the first deal came to us thanks to what's been a fantastic source of deals for us is conservation organizations. I mentioned to you that we. Focus on uh, working on ecologically important properties. Well, we do that because there's a bunch of advantages to that. The foremost of which is, of course, it's worth it, right? Like, if you're going to improve a property, you might as well improve a property that's important to really improve. My improve, of course, again, I mean, we're going to restore wetlands, creeks, get rid of nasty structures, get rid of wildlife unfriendly fencing, do do things that are going to bring more wildlife here. Which, by the way, again, that's why someone's going to spend a few million dollars because they want to see a pile of wildlife on their place. They don't want to see it on their neighbor's place while they've got a junk pile going on theirs. So again, you're doing exactly what that end buyer is going to want, but you're also improving it. You're making it more valuable from a, from a conservation, from a standpoint that the environmental world cares about. And so we get a lot of deal flow from conservation groups. And that first one came from the Nature Conservancy of Idaho, who said, hey, there's a really important property we would love to see protected. We're not in a position to be able to buy it. Uh, It's got a spring creek on it. It needs some restoration work. We came to the table and said, well, we've got the money, but we've got to figure out whether this fits the investment thesis, the mandate we've been given Worked through all that. We solved an access problem. We restored a creek, meaning a legal access problem. Uh, probably worked on a physical access problem too with a new bridge, put a cute little cabin on the place and, and turned what was kind of i I'm going to say junkie, no offense to prior owner. They just had different priorities. They wanted to graze as many cattle as they could. We wanted to create a, a family retreat, very different priorities. And that's again, where that arbitrage is. Uh, cattle properties only worth X. You care about how much water's flowing through the place, how much grass is grown, how many cattle you can put on there, as opposed to you know the value we're after, which is how much is that highly emotional buyer going to pay for the wonderful retreat in central Idaho, not far from Sun Valley. So that's that's what got us over the hump, and that was the first deal we did. And you guys still hold that, or have you sold uh, it? No, this is probably back in two thousand six or so, and and so yeah, that
0: that was long gone. Do you have a target holding period? Is it kind of fix it up and just turn around? Or is it something where it, it that depends?
1: Well, it depends. We really focus on a multiple of invested capital. Most of our investors are, are driven by cash on cash return as opposed to IRR. That was one of these learning experiences for me. We initially targeted an IRR. And uh, frankly, by the time we buy a property, let's say in your in time zero, uh, we go through the process of getting all the permits we need to do the creek restoration, wetland restoration, anything that's going to involve the state approval process, probably Army Corps of Engineers. We may be another six or nine months out from purchase to being able to figure out what we want to do to then actually getting permits. So maybe by that time, we're all the way out to a year post-acquisition. Then we go in there and we make a freaking mess, Meb. I mean, we're literally tearing up stuff everywhere. We're putting a creek back in a channel it inhabited 100 years ago. So there's a lot of dirt flying around and it doesn't look very pretty, frankly. Then you come back in, plant a bunch of trees, reseed the grass, et cetera. Um, And this is just an example of like one- Rest, one type of restoration that's occurring on a ranch that probably has four or five of these projects going on at one time, but you bring a potential buyer out uh, the moment you finish and, and they just see a sloppy mud pile. And frankly, the wildlife, and, and talking about creek restoration, the, the fish haven't started to re-inhabit the place that they didn't know was inhabitable for the last 100 years in this example. So it takes time probably two or three years from that point in time, you've got the grass coming up to knee high. You're never going to know any work was done there. The fishing's excellent, et cetera. That's then when you want to start selling the property. So you're, we're now at your kind of three to five of our, since our purchase, that's tough to generate a strong IRR at that point in time. So uh, we shifted to a multiple invested capital and and um, you know made the choice then not to try and sell these things fast for a high IRR, but a low multiple and instead said, we're going to maximize for the multiple. Thus, we're not going to list it until we're at that point where it's really at its best.
0: There's a lot of different ways we could go, but maybe tell us about um, just like a, another property you sourced and kind of... Um, because I imagine they're all different, right? And I imagine it's just a endless pit of due diligence, like looking at some of these because, you know, you buy a house and I feel like that world is, you know, pretty structured and, and the value add of the improvements is pretty well known. I mean, even Zillow and others now talk about like, what color the doors are and what has the most, you know, impact on a very quantitative factor-based sort of model. But, you know, I imagine this is a lot more inefficient and, and varied and, and by state too. Maybe walk us through some other, uh, another property and kind of let, we'll talk a little bit about kind of what, what, what y'all did. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of fun examples uh, there. I mean, How many of y'all been through at this point or in process uh, as well? Oh, I think we're in the 30s now, Mab. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. High 20s, low 30s, somewhere in that range. Maybe one that I'll pick for its interesting nature. This is south of Jackson, Wyoming, you know, recreational hotspot, right? So we went to an auction for a different property. Uh Matt literally sat next to a, a, a woman who was at the property, started talking to her. She calls a couple days later, says, uh, we did not buy that property, uh, nor did she. Uh, she says, hey, I've got a friend who manages a ranch and she'd like to talk to you. I said, okay, kind of mysterious, but let's do it. So we talked to the ranch manager. 30 plus years ago, a group had developed about 12 miles of creek in, uh, south of Jackson. This is on North Cottonwood Creek. And had started to put together uh, home sites they had put home sites in, they'd placed roads in, they'd put in power, they, you know they'd done it all. But the pitch was that everybody was going to stay in, in one location and actually just share a, a, a common space to, to use. So the rest of the ranch had never been developed except for one spot. But she ended up having nine different owners. And uh, she saw the writing in the wall that they were going to be sellers in the next few years. They weren't there yet, but they'd kind of been starving the ranch of resources, and uh, many of them had moved on in life and didn't spend any time there, and yet they were footing a quarter million dollar plus bill every year to be part of what effectively was a club. It's kind of like the the country club or the gym you sign up for, right? And and then you just don't end up using it and you wonder why you're spending money on it. So we started talking to her and and really borrowing the tools of lower lower middle market um, investing said, well, how about we partner with you and we partner with you to give you an ownership stake in this thing because you see a whole bunch of ways this place could be improved. You help us work with the nine different owners to kind of get them all on the same page because they had divergent views of what the place was worth, whether they wanted to sell or not, if they sold, what they'd want to do afterwards, all this kind of stuff. And then we uh, do this thing together. She didn't have the funds to do it. Uh, we did, uh, but she had the expertise and the connections. And so we did precisely that. We, we worked with her to get each individual owner what they needed, signed nine different purchase and sale agreements, rolled the what literally was a subdivision all back together into one big, almost 3,000-acre ranch. And that's about uh, almost four square miles, three to four square miles about 12 miles of creek on the property, beautiful meandering creek, but it really needed some love. So we bought it, uh, worked with with her as a, as a part owner and, and restored about 10 of those miles of creek. And um, several years later then, roughly two years later, uh, we're approached by a, a broker for a buyer who, who said, I don't know where else I'm ever going to find. Uh, at that point, we had 11 miles of, of creek that's perfect Wade. fishing, you know, just outside Jackson Hole, my clients have a place there. Can we talk about your selling this to us? And uh, we were, it was, frankly, ahead of schedule for us. We were not ready to sell, but you don't, you don't look to get, look a gift horse in the, in the mouth, of course. And so we engaged with them and, and we're able to sell it to them. Uh, they're now happy owners of that place.
0: Just for perspective, when uh, the listeners listen to this, when they hear ranch, like, is there a typical size range that you're willing to consider as well as um, value range? Um, as far as what, what's, what's your wheelhouse? Well, it varies dramatically by
1: geography. So we did a different deal not far from Jackson, Wyoming to south of Wilson, uh, in which we bought small property, smallest thing we've ever touched by far, 160 acres. Now, this is 160 acres completely surrounded by national forest. So your backyard is you know, a million acres, it's not 160 acres really. And for Jackson, Wyoming, 160 acres is enormous. I and mean, we're talking, you know, typically we're you know, maybe 10 acres. That's a big place. So given that market, this was uh, a very large property despite it being the smallest thing we've ever worked on. The largest thing we've ever worked on is probably 5,000 plus acres. Um, although we nearly closed on a 27,000 deeded acre place, uh, which, which would have been just enormous. And yet, interestingly enough, this smallest acreage we've ever bought was the most expensive on a per acre basis. Not surprisingly, you know, we're talking $30,000 an acre just to get access to that now. And this was many years ago, by the way, you're not going to find that anymore, nor would you find that when we resold it. Uh, and yet we've also spent $300 an acre on, you know, thousands of acres in more rural parts of the world. So if I'm trying to bookend it, uh, you know, we we love deals that are kind of in the 2 to $5 million acquisition range. We end up usually putting 25 to 30, 40% more of, of that purchase price into it for the restoration work. And then uh, we're kind of targeting things that are typically maybe uh, 640 to a
0: couple thousand acres in size. So, how do you find these at this point? You know, I, you mentioned the early days of the real estate index and, um, or the ranch index. And as you kind of went through the process at this point, I'm sure it's well established kind of your your process and would love to hear it, but like, how does, is it a network of brokers? Is, are there now websites? Is it just auctions? Is it what, like, how do you go about finding all these ranches?
1: Well, every time I think I've got a system for finding things that I realize I don't yet, or I need to add another Category to that system, everything you said and more, MEB. I mean, uh, the most recent transaction we've done, re- transactions we've done, have come from conservation groups. I talked about that earlier. There are all sorts of groups from the Nature Conservancy to Trout Unlimited; uh, those being two fantastic partners locally here in Bozeman, Gallant Valley Land Trust. We've got all sorts of different partners, and you know what they have—they have effectively of uh, acquisitions force for us, meaning Nature Conservancy of Montana has something like 30 employees dedicated to landowner stewardship, easement conservation easement stewardship, and, and really effectively knowing landowners. We don't have that big a team, period, much less dedicated to finding the next acquisition. So, if we can partner up with that organization, now again, pick your different one, try to limit it on Nature Conservancy, you name it, in a particular geographic area and have them it just leads when they hear that. Well, you know, I was chatting with such and such person, and it turns out the neighbor is likely to be a seller because you know, some patriarch passed away that kind of thing. Like, that's a scuttlebutt we'd love. We love that because then we're able to engage directly with a landowner, figure out what they're after. Frankly, right now we're working on a deal in which um, the owners don't want to sell, they own a giant. Piece of property, and they've got some challenges uh, uh, that they need to meet financially, and we're going to help meet that. And I, my fervent belief is, they get to hold on to the you know the home core place that is what they're after. I might have to sell some outlying parcels or do something like that, but let's get creative. I mean, we, we've done all sorts of different creative deals, uh, whether it be options of the right to purchase us out in the future, whether it be a profits interest in the the future value we create, you know, the obvious stuff like uh, seller financing, you name it, we we get creative, which really is not something I'm aware that anybody else is offering out there. Uh, every other actor in this market is either a buyer or a seller. And that's a buyer or seller of 100% ownership of a particular ranch. I mean, things as simple as, why don't you keep the back 40 where your house is? I don't need to buy that. We'll take the you know 1,000 acres that's on the other side of the road. That, that, that usually does not even come up in a conversation with the seller. So we just try to offer a whole bunch of solutions you know, to the sourcing channels kind of conversation, conservation groups, uh, you know. Okay, occasionally appraisers, the contractors we work with, they're wonderful partners. Um, brokers, absolutely. We've worked with brokers for approaching 20 years now and paid them a, a very large amount or caused to be paid them a very large amount in commissions. I mean, we're, we're a, again, that repeat actor uh, in, a, in a very retail environment.
0: My brother is a good example. I don't think I've told this on the podcast, but my brother and I had some um little piece of land on uh on the Colorado River and kind of remote, hard to get to couldn't use it in the winter d- didn't uh, undeveloped and you know I thought for a long time you know hey maybe uh maybe it's time to sell this so we' we had put up a for sale sign so that all the rafters going by could uh see it and you know got some inquiries but speaking to the inefficiency of this market um the property uh butted up against a newly purchased very large ranch that was um growing like wagyu cattle or something uh and high-end you know um beef and they obviously need more uh more land as well as access to water and so at which point I, I i we were like this is like game theory with my brother i was like well this buyer seems like they're probably cost insensitive because they just purchased this plot for it's like a, a wealthy kansas city you know uh businessman for i don't know it's like 30 million or something i said let's just name like i don't know triple what we think it's worth just to see like just like anchoring and they just wrote back they're like okay You know, like not even negotiation. They're like, okay. And and we were both like, oh, we should have said. But however, in the final contract, I wrote in when they sent back for edits, I said, um, you have to include one cow. Um, You know, the the products of one cow, I, I forget how much a cow weighs, but what the eventual stake and, you know, output would be. And they, and they kind of laughed and they're like, that's funny. I was like, no, I'm serious. Like you guys have to include like a, and they're like, we're not going to be in production for like, you know, six years or something. So they're like, here, you can, you can afford to go buy a few stakes with this, but it just goes to show it's a real world example of like how, and I actually got a text yesterday. Apparently the for sale sign is still on the land for some reason. Um, people keep texting me about it, but uh, so it's sold listeners. Um, but I think that's a, like a, it goes to show this asset class is, is, just notoriously inefficient. You couldn't have found it on Zillow, I don't think. <laughs> or, uh, no, I, Matt,
1: we've done some crazy things. We've uh, offered to purchase land uh, in a price fixed to gold. We've taken on uh, uh, effectively wild bison herd that the seller didn't want to have to deal with. We've taken on all sorts of weird things and had all sorts of odd occurrences. It, it is an inefficient market. There, there's a lot of oddities to it. Having said that, I'll, I'll be the first to acknowledge it's way harder to do this and make money than I would like, honestly. Uh, I, I thought this would be a, a little bit easier than, than it is. It's,
0: it's hard. It's a hard, hard road. And so the word ranch can mean a lot of different things. I think to people, it could be raw and developed land. It could be um, a big one for me, but I, I also think probably a big post-COVID one is, is just space and fly fishermen is a big one, hunting, cattle, even mineral rights. Is, is there a common thread or do you guys kind of do any, any and all? any and all oftentimes overlapping in the same property. Um, so
1: yeah, we'll graze cattle or or neighbor will lease to the neighbor. At the same time, we've got a beautiful fly fishing creek flowing by. Uh, at the same time, we've uh, you know worried about mineral rights and water rights and everything else. So yeah, it's it's there, there's a lot of people in real estate, of course, talk about the bundle of sticks and uh, th- those get really interesting when you start talking about mineral rights and, and water rights and, and things like
0: that. So how many states are, are y'all in currently? Or, or, or sorry, how many states have y'all operated in today is there like just two or three is there a wheelhouse of specific states
1: yeah I mean we really focus on the greater Yellowstone area so for for those you know Yellowstone's about 20 million acres you know first national park and and really it, it is the largest area in the lower 48 states that still has the flora and fauna that existed when white folks first showed up so, there's a reason why people go there to vacation, uh, you know, not surprisingly. You, you got bears and you got bison and you got everything. And what's interesting about the park is, of course, it's not fenced. All that wildlife moves in and out of the park seasonally, daily, you name it. And so ranches that abut the park get bison walking through them. They get grizzly bears moving through them. And, and as you get further and further out, that that diminishes, of course. But really, in this part of the world, the conservation groups are, are concerned about making sure that, that wildlife, those wildlife have the opportunity to move and move freely, especially in a changing climate. They got to be able to move north-south. They got to be able to move up and down in elevation, etc. And so, really, that's really why we focus on that this region of the world that I'm standing in, the Greater Yellowstone Area. It's the most important area, I I believe, in the lower 48 states. and, And so, there's so much history here too, of course. So we focus there. Uh, we do expand beyond that. Uh, most of the deals we've done have been in Montana. Probably about 50% of them have been in Montana. We've certainly done Idaho and Wyoming, kind of outside that tight little greater Yellowstone area. We've done deals in New Mexico, Colorado, uh, and California. I think that's the, that's the entire list. Uh, but again, we tend to, tend to focus on what we know well, which is that Idaho, Montana, Wyoming area.
0: I was going to say I don't think it's going to be inefficient, but the uh, is is Kanye putting his big uh, his ranch up for sale now? in Cody, I think I saw post divorce. Yeah, it's for sale. Was, oh man, I, I guarantee that that's not that's not probably undiscovered gem, is it? I looked at it before he bought it. Actually, I
1: didn't see what he saw in it, but uh, that's okay
0: okay well it's if you are gonna use it for a spaceport or whatever he was building I'm not sure uh maybe it's a, uh, it's undervalued. Tell me a couple of stories you know um you know as you kind of bought some of these properties either some uh some painful or fond memories well, and the more humorous
1: end and then I'll get serious with you, but the more humorous end um we've gotten back a report on the quality of a structure uh on on the on the place the ranch manager's house this is as we're considering buying a property, and um, said that we had a, a termite issue. So I called the ranch manager to say, hey, we, we need to call an inspector here. Who would you recommend? Let's, let's figure out how we deal with this. And uh, upon sharing that information, she said, well, that's great, I was gonna call the uh, lawyer anyways. Uh, this is a very small town, by the way. And I said, uh, oh, what did, what's this I'm non sequitur here? I'm not following the termite infestation to calling a lawyer. And she said, oh, well, the lawyer is also the uh, exterminator in town. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, oh, well, okay. A, that's interesting. B, why is it that you were going to call the uh, lawyer? She said, Oh, because you know my dad used to manage the place before me and he remembered why it is that the title has this funny clause in it and wasn't transferred correctly. I said, Well, why was that? That sounds like actually pretty important. She said, Well, yeah, that's because that owner had been uh flying in uh prostitutes and uh so they'd literally like kind of taken back the land from from him. <laughs> So in one conversation, I had the lawyer who's also the exterminator who was going to solve an issue regarding prostitutes for us. And uh, And
0: that was just Monday morning.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Quickly became Friday afternoon. But yeah. So uh, that's my fun one. I mean, I guess from the story standpoint, I, I, I think I love complexity and trying to get people what they want, right? Like these are all we tend to at least find focus uh, sometimes i wish we didn't but on the big hairy complex stuff now it's got to be solvable right like I, I think early on you referenced you know early on what, what's changed uh, kind of thing like early on i feel like we used to focus on complexity but not necessarily complexity that had a very high probability of success of solving i like think now we've gotten much better at focusing on complexity that it's a knockdown easy thing to solve but it's still complex. And it may not be easy for everybody to solve, but we can do it. So my most recent kind of fun story is, um, and I'm going to keep the names of the innocent uh, innocent by not involving them, but a situation in which a, a patriarch of a family passed away, kids don't want the property, so they become sellers. Problem is, um, they don't have legal needed access to their property. They're cut off by a neighbor. Second, they find out later after they actually get the title report that they didn't even own all their property, undivided interest. It was owned by a neighbor. So all of a sudden, they're trying to sell a property that doesn't have legal access and has an undivided interest attached to it. And so, you know, there are about five other problems I won't go into. But, um, you know, what are you going to do? Like, they're stuck. They, 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 frankly, they're wealthy and don't want to concern themselves with this. Uh, They just want to pay the state tax and move on. Hire a broker. Broker, wonderful guy, had a blast doing the transaction with him. But he didn't want to solve the problem either. I mean, he's he's busy. He actually tried to solve it with a neighbor. The neighbor wasn't too keen on giving away value uh, that uh, would would help this be sold to a potential developer or something like that. They wanted it to stay nice and wide open, so they didn't really want to help. So we came in. We were fortunate enough to be brought in by a conservation group. Conservation group connected us directly with the family, with the broker, with a neighbor. Two different neighbors, by the way, um, were involved. And we just frankly met we just walk in and put all the cards on the table and say, here's who we are, here's what we've done. Oh, we know you from such and such place. We don't know you yet, but you know, here's some past work we've done that you might enjoy. And just just who who are we is, is really what we're trying to share. And then what what issues do you have? How can we help you solve a problem? Well, turns out the one who was holding all the cards and access wasn't holding all the cards. They needed access from the same family. Turns out we could find a create a solution for the undivided interest situation and, and get that individual exactly what he needed. And so I mean, it was a long process, uh, six plus months. But at the end, I think everybody walks away happy, and that feels really good. You know, we end up owning a place. Frankly, we've already solved all the problems with the property. So the day we buy it, we've already put a multiple on our investment. Now it comes at a cost of a lot of brain damage on my part and our team's part, but we're, we're happy to do that. Neighbor ends up with what he wants. Other neighbor ends up with what they want. Sellers end up with what they want. And you know, it's really, it's a, it's a win-win for everybody. What we often do is figure out who is going to value this property or this portion or this right most. And so we did a deal in, in Colorado, not too far from Denver there, property that had been mined And you still have mining tailing piles, 16 feet tall, lining the banks of the creek. Local broker um, just doesn't have a big network with which to sell the thing. Probably followed your strategy. Let's put a sign by the side of the road and see what happens here. Not much happened. We learned about it from a a wonderful partner broker um, who who said, hey, I think this could be something you're interested in because there's clearly some cleanup to do. So we got involved. Um, Turns out that uh, during our due diligence, we learned that the sellers of the property, owners of the property, um, owned 500 more acres than they realized. This is one of these multi-generational things and it's just a fence has always been where it's been and I never run a title report to know what they actually own. So A, we fixed the price in terms of absolute value, not in terms of a per acre number, of course. So that's nice. Second, then we were able to come in and uh, clean up all of these gold mining tailing piles along the side of the creek. And uh, podcast, hard to share pictures, but if uh, you, you see the before and after this thing, it's amazing. Replanted, revegetated the whole area, got rid of the hazardous materials, got the state of Colorado in this case to sign off on well, no liability, et cetera. And this is a big place, about 5,000, over 5,000 deeded acres, a couple of leases, et cetera. And it was naturally split by a highway and another county road, I think, et cetera. And so really what we ended up doing is first aggregating, like we bought some property from neighbors, and then we actually took it apart and, and effectively said, well, who values this most highly? And I don't mean in a subdivision way or anything like that, but the county wanted a piece of the land. The state wanted to create a hunting and fishing publicly accessible area. So, we, we did those two transactions. Some of the neighbors had a lease on um, public lands nearby. They wanted some additional deeded lands uh, to run their cows on. We sold to them. And then we ended up selling to uh, a wealthy individual who wanted uh, you know the rest for fly fishing with he and his, his son and the rest of his family. So, really kind of a, a beautiful... Another beautiful story and uh, lots of stuff to clean up. But once you're done with all that hard work, you end up making some people really, really happy. And not just the usual suspects. I mean, right now, especially post-COVID, most buyers are wealthy individuals. You know, in this case, the state of Colorado and every member of the public who wants to stop and hunt, fish, hike on that land is a beneficiary. Uh, same with the county. Um, those are fun ones, man.
0: You've existed through a financial crisis and then now this uh, pandemic and who knows what what the future holds. But Um, I presumably, um, and this is obviously good and bad, uh, you know, that you've had a tailwind from this trend of, I assume a lot of interest the last few years in sort of the properties that you, uh, would acquire and sell, but also I imagine it also pushes up the potential cost of acquisition as well. Talk to us a little bit about the last couple of years through COVID and kind of how, how that, uh, experience was for you guys and any insights there. And, and Yellowstone, too. You guys got a double whammy. Yellowstone show and then also uh, COVID happened at the same time.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, the Yellowstone one's funny because I've been interviewed by reporters. And frankly, the, one of the first questions that the, they tend to ask is, do I look like John Dutton and do I wear a big hat and uh, you know whatever shirt he wears? And I say, no, I'm kind of more of the Patagonia vest and... Baseball cap kind of guy, but uh, that that crushes most stories because uh, they want that tie. But yeah, the first thing to, to know is uh, I am no market prognosticator. And uh, you know, when COVID first hit, uh, uh, I wrote our investors and said, you know, hang on here, um, it's going to be a tough sledding ahead here. I, I think we're, we're going to enter a period of illiquidity. About a month later, I wrote our investors and, and said, you know, terrible to say, but this is probably one of the better things that's ever happened to us. Um, and so now, with the benefit of a couple of years of hindsight, unfortunately, of, of COVID, I think what we've had occur, and frankly, it's not just COVID. It's, it is COVID plus uh, really ties to COVID, things tied to COVID, like that desire for open space you mentioned, like really The speeding up of technological adoption. I mean, we're doing this over Zoom and I don't think I'd ever done a Zoom meeting pre-COVID. Now it's practically all I do. I never get on a plane anymore. And so what that's done for folks is allowed them to work from anywhere. And uh, that is part of that housing boom in Bozeman, but that spills over to the ranch outside Bozeman, uh, to the ranch outside Jackson, Wyoming, to the ranch outside Sun Valley, especially for those folks who, who don't really want to go back to the trenches. Um, well, why would they take that subway ride into Manhattan or within Manhattan every morning if they don't have to uh, work from home, do the Zoom thing? So uh, all of the knock-on effects associated with COVID, I would say, uh, have also driven things Um things being uh, increases in the pool of buyers for ranch properties. Protests, frankly, uh, in in the summer of 2021, et cetera, um, we've you're living in Chicago and there's protests nightly outside your your apartment building, uh, I, this is a real story from someone. Of course, that guy wants to buy a ranch and just get the heck out of there. Get that open space you're talking about. Same thing, frankly, with politics. And I, I prefer not to go into politics, but whether you're red or blue, people seem to think that they're going to escape it by coming to a place where you get a little more elbow room and, and free space and people aren't going to either tell them what to do or they're not going to have to be around a bunch of people who aren't behaving the way they're behaving. So you almost couldn't lose given all those different things if you were involved in the rural real estate market. But I would say that's accentuated by those areas, the Sun Valleys, Aspens, Bozeman's, et cetera, that have all the creature comforts. And, and so those areas have experienced excess pressure above and beyond just the general kind of, I want something rural. Hey, it'd be great if I guess I'm rural and still be able to drive in town for a great dinner uh, and then drive, you know, 20, 30 minutes back to my, my home, my ranch. So we've seen a lot of that, you know, our, our investment model is really designed to work no matter what the market's doing. I mean, sometimes we'll get a nice discount on a property because of something funky going on in the seller situation. But oftentimes we're paying market value given what that property is. And that's the key, what that property is. Because that property is a degraded, uh, just described a minute ago, formerly gold mined property with hazardous materials on it. Who wants to buy that? No one wants to buy that, at least not at a reasonable price. So, you know what? We'll pay a reasonable price for it, baking in the amount it's going to cost to clean us up, clean it up. And then once we're done with it, that's where that kind of arbitrage comes in. Because I'll tell you what, the cost to clean that up was a small fraction of the increase in value that was added to that property. It looked like a horrible liability, Frankly, it had physical piles like it was a horrible liability, a horrible mess, a horrible thing to have to clean up. But it's not when you get down to it. And if you know, if you got the right contractors and you got the right relationships and you know how to deal with risk and things like that, which by the way, I don't claim to be an expert at all this, which we're always learning, we make more than our fair share of mistakes. But your typical buyer in this market doesn't want those problems. And they perceive a lot of liability and a lot of risk, whereas we can, we're not afraid to spend the time and due diligence to understand whether there is real risk there, in which case we're not going to touch it, or we can, we can overcome this and preferably we can overcome it before we even put a dollar into the purchase of that ranch.
0: Do you ever consider owning and operating a ranch? So like you say, you buy it and then you take a look at it and you're like, wait, just kidding. This could actually be a pretty nice income producing property and we'll just hold on to it, and you know, um, whatever it, whatever that means. There's a lot of different ways to for it to be income producing. But is that is that something you guys would ever consider, or just not not part of the thesis?
1: Well, yes, and that we're trying to create as much cash flow off the property as we can while we own it. Having said that, usually the first thing I disabuse potential investors of is the fact that we're going to be writing a month, dividend every year. Not going to happen. Uh, first of all, even if you stacked up all sorts of different revenues from hunting, from fishing, from agricultural leases, from a VRBO lease, you're still going to get yourself to a 1% or a 2% kind of uh, annual return. It's, just, it's not what a typical investor is going to want. Not material relative to what it's not material compared to what you paid for the place. Exactly, it helps stem your losses, etc. Uh, we've done a we did a timber operation in which the uh, sustainable timber operation in which the harvest and sale of the timber associated with the property fully paid for all the restoration work we were trying to do. That was kind of cool. So in a sense, it it can keep money in your pocket as opposed to actually putting more money into your pocket. So. That's the first thing I'd say. Is we just, we're just we not farmlands, We're not timber. But the difference here is on the negative, we're not generating that kind of cash flow. Uh, the positive is we're really buying distressed assets and fundamentally adding value. So a you know, timber fund isn't saying, well, there's some distressed timber here and we can add value to it by uh, restoring it somehow. That that doesn't happen really. Farmland, maybe a little bit more um, distressed farm. I'm going to pile a bunch of money into it, make it more valuable, change the irrigation regime, regimen, regimen, cetera. There's some of that, but uh, that's just way more efficient, and uh, the the value creation I believe is far lower than what we're dealing with.
0: Decision to be a B Corp. Uh, how hard, challenging is that? And kind of what what was the thinking behind it?
1: There wasn't a lot of thought behind it. I'll, I'll tell you that. And this is X many years ago now. Um, and really my, my partner at the time drove the process, uh, really with the right intention, I think, which is why wouldn't we? Why isn't everybody a B Corp? If we can do this, we should. It's kind of an obligation, especially given we want to treat our people well. We want to treat the planet well. We're improving the environment here anyways. Like seems like a no brainer. It has gotten harder to stay a B Corp for us because we're not a corporation making widgets. We're not focused as much as I'd love to be. I'm not focused on uh you know hiring more people of you know different backgrounds. Um I, I'd love to. We and we do when we try to make a hire, but man, we're a five-person team, you know, we're just not adding people left to right. And and so um I don't want to give ourselves a pass because of that, but um we're really a B Corp in like the environmental sense and how we treat our people sense. And so um why? Because it felt like the right thing to do, and I think it is. Honestly, if we didn't get the certification, it's not going to change how we operate. It's, it's we're going to operate how we operate. And I'll, I'll go on a small tangent here for you, and hopefully not make too many enemies. But the impact investing world um, is is big on surveys, kind of like B Corp um, certification, et cetera, so that you can get on their platform, or so that they can tell their clients, you know, what what you're what you're all about, and and really the end result being what's the impact, you know what are they going to tell the client? Like, hey, climate change has been reduced by X many tons of carbon or something like that. Or, or we've hired X many more people that uh, are from a, a, a different sector. And the challenge I, I have with, with that really is that we just don't fit in a bucket. We're, we're so different. We're so unique. We're fundamentally altering properties. Uh, and, and as a part of doing that, restoring wetlands and creeks, et cetera, that's sequestering carbon. Can I tell you exactly how much? No. I can't put up a score for that. Um, we're doing things. We're, we're hiring people locally on a, on a rural level, you know all sorts of things like that. But it's, it's having a huge impact like from a touch and feel and even size standpoint, but it's not something you can very easily quantify. And, and so I, I you know, put our stats up against almost anybody from a how much carbon are you sequestering standpoint? Piles and piles and piles and piles. How many wildlife are you, you know, preserving uh, their migratory corridor? You know, put us up against anybody in that. Uh, but it's just those are the items that aren't necessarily uh, tracked, nor can we quantify them for a, a B Corp or an impact investing type survey. I mean, one of my favorite examples, Meb, is uh, we, we do keep track of kind of our own metrics on, on how we're doing, but they're the ones that make sense for us. One of my favorites that we added to the list after we worked on a property that had, I'm going to call it wildlife unfriendly fencing. It was just north of Yellowstone and way back in, you know, 40 years ago, the former owner had supposedly, I don't know this to be fact, but had supposedly built a super high fence. It's called page wire, meaning it's about four inches in diameter, you know, from floor to ceiling, i.e. kind get a nine foot tall fence. And then it closed it in when he had a herd of Yellowstone elk in there at one point um, and uh, <laughs> literally locked the door on the public's elk. Eventually, that was outlawed. You can't farm elk in Montana, um, and uh, then they started farming bison. We dealt with bison when we bought it. But point is, we bought a property that had this impenetrable barrier for elk, antelope, other wildlife trying to move on this corridor north of Yellowstone National Park. Well, prior to that year, you know, a couple would slip through. We'd, we'd see prior to our taking down the fence, we'd see three somehow slip through this fence. We took it down next year, thirty. Year after that, three hundred. So those are cool metrics, not to beat a dead horse, we don't get credit for them in a B Corp or an impact investing survey, but I don't really care. Like That feels good. And that is an amazing benefit for the wildlife and frankly, for the public, because they're flowing off of public land onto more public land through private, et cetera. Those those are cool metrics. Yeah.
0: As you kind of look back on uh, all the deals and investments y'all have done, what's been uh, sort of the most memorable uh, ranch you've been involved with it could be good, it could be bad, uh, anywhere in between. Is there one that uh, comes to mind? You know, probably the first big creek, re- big river restoration project we
1: did is on the North Fork of the Mussel Shell River. This is one of those, as you asked early in the interview, like, why'd you pull the trigger kind of things? It, it's scary because if you're going to, in this case, spend $4 million and then another million to do the restoration work, are the fish going to come back? Like, they're wild animals. You can't control that the fish actually show up. Uh, we, we were a year or so into our, into our bare-tooth existence. Uh, we literally had a river that had been ditched on the property. And so the thesis was work with ex- experts who can help us pull it out of that ditch, put it back in its natural meandering path, You know, plant a pile of willows and cottonwoods and aspens, et cetera, along the banks, I'm um, simplifying things, obviously. Um, but you, you end up doing that, creating the right habitat in-stream, outside of stream, and you're going to bring back... Fish and all sorts of other wildlife. So we bit the bullet, uh, bought it, and uh, went in and, and got after it. I mean, so many things did and, and could have gone wrong from massive flooding events that first year to uh, all sorts of things that uh, kind of threw a wrench in our plans. In fact, I even had an investor come and fish it just as we were starting to do the restoration work, and I think he was testing us out. And effectively, he, I think he must have been thinking—he didn't say this out loud—but must have been thinking, "What have I done with my money? Like this place is a you know what hole," and left in, in kind of a hurry. Um, well, two, three years later, we had him back. The, the restoration work had taken hold. It looked better. It fished better, et cetera. You know, I met him after he fished all morning, uh, and he was sitting down for an early lunch. And I said, "Why are you back early?" He said, "My arm's tired." got so many fish, so many big fish, my arm is physically tired. And I think I'm done for the day. And I thought, you know, that's like the best praise I can get. Uh, we, we did it. It worked. And by the way, it almost always works because if you do the job right, and that really requires the right partners, uh, not everybody can do great creek restoration work like the folks did on this one, but the fish will find it. It might take a year or two, but they'll be there. And and so in this case, you know, it worked from his standpoint, you know, what I found Shocking on that deal, also is that on the banks of that what used to be ditch you know now creek, it was basically bare land. they just grazed the thing into oblivion, just too many cattle that had been the focus before us and and so Two into cattle, I should say, in an uncontrolled manner. Cattle can be a great restorative tool. I'm um, happy to get into that if you like, but in this case, they were not. They were a destructive tool. And all the planting we did and the rest that we gave it and the fencing uh, to keep cattle out of the bottom land, et cetera. And I walked through it with my, at the time, I don't know what they were, probably as old as your kids, kind of three and five or so in my case, you know, year old daughters. And the bird life was just incredible. It was all the sounds you could hear. They were different from just kind of a moonscape before. And, and the kids were like, daddy, you know, it's so different. There's so much wildlife here. We jumped a little deer, we saw the fish, et cetera. And, and that, I mean, to me, that's that's a memory, right? Like the, what else can we do that's better than leave the world a better place for our kids, right? Like that was that moment for
0: me. Yeah. Let's talk about your investors for a second. You mentioned one of them got to go fish on the property. Is that like a benefit? You're like, hey, you guys can come visit these while they're uh, while they're in the portfolio. Is that uh, you, you have to like uh, subscribe a certain amount as to, to get access? How's that work?
1: <laughs> Heck yeah. I, I encourage any of our investors, anybody who thinks about being an investor to come and, and fish. There's just, there, there's no better way to see our work than to be able to, this year we held our annual meeting action as kind of a, in the midst of restoration. We try and, if people are willing, get them there before, get them there after. Uh, the before usually is kind of glum and I don't know what these Yahoos are doing, kind of feeling. And, and then the after is like, oh my gosh, don't sell it. I want to keep using it. Uh, we we had that conversation with an investor recently, and you know, we're we're not a fun, we're not a country club, we're not a club, we're not some group thing for folks to come and join and get to fish. It's a side benefit. We're, we're, we're here to bring more dollars to conservation, improve the world, and make a good financial return in the process. And that really doesn't involve your usage of the property. Having said that, we're happy to get people on the property and, and absolutely love it when they come. And it could be fishing, it could be elk hunting, it could just be a horseback ride or a, or a hike. I mean, um, it's, it's a neat way, actually. I've talked to a number of folks who have said, I think I want to buy a ranch someday. A, I'm smart enough to know I don't know what I'm doing. B, I don't really want to have to deal with managing it yet. So maybe I can try a few out via your fund. And heck, if that's why you want to invest, that's great. We're happy to have you involved.
0: Investors interested, you guys, uh, is your fund open? And if so, is there um is it rolling open? How's it work? We are not open at the moment. Uh, we're currently investing out of our third fund. I'm sure
1: we'll start the raise for the fourth fund in the next half a year or so. Um, love to have a nice overlap there between fund, funds three and four. We early on made the decision not to go down the like, hey, you're an investor only in this ranch, only in this particular property, only in this investment category. Instead, we said, you're an investor in everything we're going to do with this pool of capital. So it's a, it's a 10-year fund life and we've got a five-year investment period. Uh, if we make investments during that period, you're, you're going to be part of it. And frankly, most people enjoy that Risk obviously risk mitigation diversification within the fund. Uh, you can kind of get a, a series of vintages within the fund, if you will. Uh, meaning we're investing across a five year span. If you look at the numbers and you invest across a five year span and you know sell five years later, it's almost impossible to lose money. Um, just because generally the market's increasing it in inflation plus a couple points, that gives us a, a nice ability to get in some at the top of a market, some at the bottom of a market you know and everything else kind of in between. Again, I talked earlier about our investment model is somewhat mark, what the market is doing is somewhat irrelevant to us. Again, we're, we're kind of paying market-ish values, albeit sometimes a lot better because of the lack of information in the market, the inefficiency. but most of the time really the value is coming from the, the work we're doing, the value we're adding, those million dollars we spend that adds you know, four million dollars to the value of the property at the end of the day. I'm not implying we're putting up four X's. I'm saying on the dollars we put into the ranch, you know, those dollars are coming out at multiples of themselves.
0: So if investors want to reach out, sign up for the wait list, if uh, somebody has a ranch to sell you, if somebody has a ranch they want to buy, what's the best place to find uh, more information on you guys and to get in touch? Our website
1: is great. Uh, Beartoothgroup.com. Again, Beartooth, like the, the bear. Uh, Beartooth Mountain Range is a famous mountain range in Montana. Um, so BeartoothGroup.com. Uh, my email, you can email me directly. I do get plenty of emails, but uh, I don't get so many. I wouldn't, wouldn't uh, be happy to correspond with somebody uh, is simply Robert at BeartoothGroup.com.
0: Well, next time, my man Bozeman will host a, uh, a meetup. We'll do a happy hour uh, uh, meetup, hopefully sooner than later. I, uh, I need to get back. It's a special place. Robert, um, it's been a blast. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Matt, thanks for the time. It's a treat. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast.